I wonder if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And I would like to begin reading at verse 27. If you'd like to follow along in the chair Bible in front of you, it's page 1008, Mark chapter 11. And please follow along with me as I begin at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. This is now Tuesday of Holy Week. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people? For they all held that John the Baptist was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now the group that confronted Jesus on Tuesday of Holy Week were members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 70 Jewish leaders, and they were the highest spiritual and legal authority in Judaism. They were the primary antagonists of Jesus throughout his entire ministry, and they included both Pharisees and Sadducees. As much as any other encounter that Jesus had with these men, This one shows how phony and inauthentic they really were. You see, their answer to Jesus' question about John the Baptist, it was crystal clear in their minds. They did not believe that his authority came from heaven, therefore they rejected him, and they rejected his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they needed the support of the people to maintain their position as the leaders of Israel and the wealth that they gained from it. And so in this very legitimate debate in which Jesus responds according to the normal debating of the day with a counter question, they cowardly withdrew from the debate stating that they were unaware of the proper answer. I want you to look for just a moment at this famous painting of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Probably a greater group of religious charlatans has never been assembled. But we have to give them credit for one thing this morning. Though they were not godly men, though they were not spiritual men, they knew what the issue was. The issue was Jesus' authority, his sovereignty over Israel. 
By riding into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, on Palm Sunday, and cleansing the temple on Monday of Holy Week, Jesus was asserting his authority. Did you notice, by the way, four times in this encounter the word authority occurs? That was the issue. And you know, as we look at this story, it's the issue for you and me as well. Will we accept the authority of Jesus in the little kingdom that we have control over? I don't think there has ever been a booklet that has put it so well as Cruz for Spiritual Laws. If you've ever looked at that booklet, you know that there are two circles. And the first circle represents the self-directed life. Self is on the throne. The interests are directed by self, resulting in discord and frustration with God's plan. And notice where Christ is. He is outside the life. But then in that booklet, there is another circle. This one is the Christ-directed life. Christ is on the throne of this life. Self is yielding to Christ. And the interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. And then that booklet so wonderfully, after giving us those two options, asks this important question, which circle best represents your life? That's always the issue. It's always the issue. Now, following this encounter, Jesus told a parable to get these Jewish leaders to think. How wonderful is Jesus? How gracious and loving he is. In spite of their hardness against him, he loved them and wanted them to come by faith and surrender to him. And so in this parable, he gives to them and to you and me four reasons why we ought to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's look in our Bibles, beginning at chapter 12, and now I want you to look with me at verse 1. And I want you to notice that Jesus begins by talking about God's goodness. Look at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now Jesus here is referring to Isaiah chapter 5. And in that chapter, God described Israel as a vine planted in a very lovely vineyard. Do you know the very temple where Jesus stood that morning as he spoke with these men from the Sanhedrin had a brilliant golden vine sculptured into the top of the temple proper just a couple of feet from the bottom. If you were to look closely, as I have done at this picture, you would see clusters of grapes gathered on the vine. 
You see, the vine from Isaiah chapter 5 was a sacred, sacred symbol to every single Jew because it symbolized their special relationship to God. Well, now we can begin to see the symbols in this parable. The man who planted the vineyard, that is God. The vine represents Israel. And the tenets were the Jewish leaders. And the point that we see in verse 1 is God did everything that he possibly could to make Israel all it should have been, a fruitful, productive witness for God. I want you to think of all the things that God did for Israel. He chose Abraham and set his love and favor on him. He protected Israel in Egypt for 400 years. Then he delivered them with powerful miracles in the ten plagues. He gave them the law on Mount Sinai as a hedge that protected them and kept them safe in the will of God. Then through Joshua, he planted them in the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey. God sent them judges, kings, priests, prophets, so that they could be nationally and spiritually strong. And as we think about the incredible goodness of God, it leads us to the simple conclusion, they should have surrendered in faith to Jesus. God had been good. Let me ask you a question. Has God been good to us? We just heard in the missions presentation how good God has been. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Romans 2.4. Would you read this verse with me? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. My father became a believer who surrendered to Jesus because of the wrath of God. He heard about the wrath of God. But this verse is a wonderful verse as well because it says God's kindness, God's goodness is often the tool that he uses to melt our hearts and to lead us to Jesus. I read a story about a a boy who was carrying home a, a loaf of bread. And a man was watching him walk and and said to him, Hey, where'd you get that loaf of bread from? He said, Well, I got it from the baker. The man said to him, Well, where did uh, uh, what 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 elements what what uh, ingredients did the baker use to make that loaf of bread? And he said, Well, the baker used flour. The man said, Well, um, where did he get the flour from? And the boy said, Well, he got it from the mill. And he said, well, where did they get the flour from? And the boy said, well, they got it from the farmer. And then all of a sudden it began to dawn on him as the man said to him, well, where did the farmer get it from? And a light went on in the boy's mind and he said, the farmer got it from God. And then the man said to him, so where did you really get the bread from? Oh, said the boy, I got it from God. 
And that little story reveals a very profound truth. Everything we have, we have gotten from God. God has been very, very good. Now add to this all of the spiritual benefits God has provided. Do you know our vine is planted in soil far richer than Israel's vine ever was? Israel had the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Israel had the hope of Christ. We have Christ. Israel had 4,000 years of Old Testament history. We have 4,000 years plus 2,000 years of Christian history. Israel had the partial ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the full ministry of the Holy Spirit. God has been very good. He has done everything that is necessary to make our lives all that they ought to be if we will turn in faith and surrender to Jesus Christ. Now in this parable, Jesus continues. And he tells us that God has done something else for us. God has been very, very patient. Look with me, starting at verse 2. When the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Now this part of the parable goes two ways in its application. Do you know at this very moment in Palestine, this very thing was happening? There are papyrus records from the first century that describe exactly what what was taking place. Uh, Vineyards in Israel, very much like this one that you see here, were owned by wealthy landlords who rented out their vineyards to tenant farmers. When the harvest came around, uh, what the tenant landowners would do was they would send servants to collect the harvest. Sometimes their portion was one-fourth to half of the produce. And the tenant farmers often resented the landowners And according to papyrus records, violent disputes were occurring at this very time in the land of Palestine. By the way, what a beautiful and observant teacher Jesus was. But here's the second part of this application. The application of this part of the parable was primarily to the history of Israel. You see, in the Old Testament, God's prophets were called servants. 
Time and again, with loving patience, God sent the prophets to Israel to gather fruit. He was looking for the fruits of repentance, faith, and righteousness. You remember his last prophet before Jesus said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. But as in the parable, those prophets were abused, wounded, and often killed. Remember what happened to Elijah? Driven out into the wilderness. What does Hebrews 11 say happened to Isaiah? He was sawn in half. And we all know what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded. And just as the owner in this parable had one more messenger, a son, so God also had one more, his son. Now, in the parable, when the son arrived, the tenant farmers assumed the owner had died. For why would he send his son if he was still alive? There's a very interesting regulation in the Jewish Mishnah in the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. And in the Mishnah, the law said said this, If there was no owner to a piece of land, it went to the first claimant after a certain amount of time. By killing the son, the tenant farmers were seeking to acquire the vineyard for themselves. Do you know what this parable really was? It was a prophecy of exactly what would happen to Jesus in just a few days. You see, the leaders in the parable were the vineyard owners, and they wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted the power and the wealth that being associated with the Sanhedrin would bring to them. And that very moment, as Jesus spoke these words, they were plotting to kill him. And in a few days, they would hand him over to the Romans, who would take him outside of the city of Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. Jesus was literally killed and thrown out of the vineyard of Israel. And all of this was done in the face of God's patient love in sending them messenger after messenger after messenger. Has God been patient with us? Has he? I one time calculated all the messengers God had sent to me in my youth. Have you ever taken time to do that? To look back and think of all the messengers God has sent to you. Here are my calculations. I had eight Sunday school teachers. I had six youth leaders. I was not always the easiest on my teachers and youth leaders. In fact, regrettably, I was difficult on some of them. I had half a dozen boys club leaders in my church. There were many vacation Bible school leaders. I went to Bible camp 10 years in a row and had many, many counselors who were messengers to me. 
There were good news club leaders as my mother held a good news club every week in my life that I could remember as a boy. By the time I was 21 years of age, I'd had eight pastors, scores of friends, and many, many relatives. God had sent to me messenger after messenger after messenger. And you know what? You are like me. You are like me. How many pastors have you had who have preached to you? How many friends and family members have prayed for you and witnessed to you? How many churches have you driven past that if you would have stopped and gone into that church, they would have welcomed you? How many radio programs have you heard? How many TV broadcasts have been available? How many Bibles have been given to you? You see, you are like me. God has patiently sent us messenger after messenger, and the question is, have we listened or have we disregarded the great patience of God? Now, I have a question. When God has been good and God has been patient, and we have refused to submit to his only son, what is next? What is next? The only answer that Jesus gives in the parable is God's justice. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What a surprise this was. The tenant farmers thought the owner was dead and now he shows up. Do you know what actually happened in Jesus' day? Some owners hired enforcers to deal with belligerent farmers. And what a surprise. The owner shows up. Many years ago, I read about an atheist who scribbled this on a wall. God is nowhere. Somebody came along and seeing that, crossed it out, separated the last word, and wrote instead, read it with me, God is now here. By the way, That is the nagging question in the back of the mind of every atheist. What happens when the God they say is nowhere is now here? What will they do then? And just about the time that we think God is nowhere, he is now here, only then 
it may be too late. This is so important, we cannot miss this. No one knows when the goodness and patience of God will run out with us and God will deal with us in justice. Please hear that today. There comes a time when God has been so good and so patient and we have resisted His will and His purposes and His Son that the only thing left is for Him to deal with us in justice. You know, historically, God set aside Israel and He turned to the Gentiles. Their judgment fell in 70 A.D., And God, in a catastrophic and in a uh, a complete way, just destroyed the whole phony religious apparatus. And the Bible says that historically, God has turned from the Jews during this age and is now primarily calling out a people for his name from amongst the Gentiles. God dealt with them in justice. But I want us to see something more here. Jesus was not just referring to the earthly punishment that was coming in about 37 years. The word destroy in verse 9, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That is a word that was referring to eternal misery in hell. Oftentimes when you read through the Bible and you find this word destroy, that's what it's referring to. And some people read something like this and they say hell is incompatible with the love of God. That a loving God would never send people to hell. Do you know what I like uh, on this issue? I love what C.S. Lewis had to say. C.S. Lewis said this in his writings, God does not send us to hell. He said, we send ourselves. God does not send us to hell. We send ourselves. What God does is he reaches out to us in goodness and patience. If we reject his goodness and patience, then we choose justice. God gives to us the consequences of our own choice. One of my dear professors who is now with the Lord, Professor Roy Zook, when he spoke about hell, explained it in this way. This is the best way I've ever heard it explained. The doctrine of hell is based on the premise that the punishment must fit the crime. People refuse to give themselves to God. God refuses to give himself to them eternally. They spurn fellowship with God. They are given separation from God. They cast Christ out of their lives. They are cast out of his life. They reject. They are rejected. Think about this parable. It's God's vineyard. It's God's vineyard. If we don't want God in his own vineyard, 
then it is only just that God makes us leave. Do you know how Jesus ends this parable? It does not end with hell, but it ends with an invitation. I'm amazed how in the space of the same verses, Jesus can talk about the punishment of hell as the justice for rejecting his authority, and then he can turn around and in compassion, he can reach out and give us an invitation again. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. they missed this amazing invitation. Think about you here today. Think about me. God has been good. God has been patient. He is withholding his justice. And in light of all of that, God continues to give us an invitation. Do you know what Jesus quotes is one of the most quoted verses in all of the Old Testament, Psalm 118, 22, and 23. It occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels as it occurs here. Let's read it together. Join me as we read Psalm 118, 22, and 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Originally, this referred to a stone in Solomon's temple that was rejected. But later it was discovered that it was the very stone that would make a great capstone. These words came to be understood as a messianic promise. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders. Through the resurrection, God succeeded in the end, and he has made Jesus the most important stone in his plan of salvation, so Jesus will be triumphant. Do you know we are invited to share in Jesus' triumph? In Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, Daniel sees this image. One day he sees a stone that falls out of heaven. It crushes the kingdoms of this world. And then that stone grows into a huge mountain that covers the whole earth. Daniel is teaching us that Jesus is that stone and his kingdom will be that mountain. And this is the invitation. Come share his mountain. Come share his kingdom. By faith, submit yourself to him as your Lord and Savior. 
And when that stone falls from heaven, crushes the kingdoms of this earth, and grows into a great mountain, you will share that mountain. You will share that kingdom with Jesus. Do you see? Do you see the image of this amazing parable? Look at it. God has been good. He's been patient with us. And rather than experience His justice, He offers us the ongoing invitation. Let's bow together in prayer. Just before we sing and our service is concluded, I can't think of a portion of Scripture that puts the gospel of Jesus Christ in such plain terms as this portion. And this morning, I don't know where you are at. Only God does. But these things I know God has been good to you. God has been patient with you. And God wants you to come to Him before the day of His justice arrives. I have sat with people as a pastor and pleaded with them to turn their lives over to Christ. They have left my office and suddenly, unexpectedly, within just a few months, I was having their funeral. And they were facing Almighty God far sooner than they ever thought. And this morning, as we are here, This is a time of decision. The Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The Bible says to us, do not boast yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And the issue is always, always, the authority of Christ, and will you own him as Savior and Lord? If you're unsure of where you stand, you can turn to him and make it sure. You can say something like this, Lord Jesus, you have been good to me. And I know that I have not been all that I should be. But I thank you that you died for me, that my sins might be forgiven, and you rose again, that I might have eternal life. 
You may say, Lord Jesus, I'm turning from my own way. I'm repenting, and I'm turning to you. I trust you right now by faith. Come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of the wrongs that I have committed. Grant to me the gift of eternal life. Make me this day a child of God. And Lord Jesus, now from this day forward, God helping me, I will follow you with all of my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, today is another day when messengers have come, when the God of goodness and patience has invited us once again. May everyone in the sound of my voice in this service and the second service, in our Sunday school hour, in our youth meetings, come to a loving and gracious Savior while there is still time. While there is still time. For Jesus' sake we pray.